Good morning and greetings. It's a privilege to be here with you. It's an honor to be back at Prairie. Just thinking about it on the way up here, I think it's been uh, five years, maybe? 2008, I believe. Uh, you just need to know that when I was sitting here and the classes were dismissed for Sunday school, and I saw out of the corner of my eye a lot of movement heading out the back for youth and intermediate, it excited me. And then they called the children's classes. And I saw groups that I didn't expect to see. I have a bit better picture because you're coming around in the evenings. It's good to see what God is doing here at Prairie. I love to see children's classes that are full. You just have to excuse me for a minute longer. For the dentist said after Bible school expires... That stirred thoughts for sure. I don't really expect Bible school to expire, but I am concerned about the staff expiring before Bible school does. <clears throat> I was fighting sleep on the way from Lansing to Prairie this morning, if that tells you anything. But it's good to be here and really enjoyed and appreciated the Sunday school lesson. Thanks to all of you, Lynn especially. And I'm going to do something that I don't really like to do in my flesh combination of our last part of our discussion there and the song that we just sang means that I'm going to switch direction for the message this morning I was I was sort of avoiding a subject because I feel I've been focusing on it so much lately that it was just filling me and I, I need to just you know that was just me I was got to get over this and I have to go in a different direction but we're going right back where I've been for I don't know how long now that last song we sang what was it were you thinking about what you were singing first Uh-huh. No, I know you thought about what you sang. What was it? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Let's just sing one more. The first verse of that song is, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall I for your Savior's love this morning? What does it take to really, really, really appreciate what he's done for you? What do you have to, what, what do you need in order to appreciate that? I know that's a confusing question. In the last couple months, the Lord has stirred my heart in appreciation for what he's done for me. And that hasn't come by focusing on his love. It hasn't come by focusing on his mercy and his grace. You know what it's come by? It's come by focusing on his holiness. Brothers and sisters this morning, 
we are a generation and a people, a nation and a culture that has lost sight of the holiness of God. When you lose sight of the holiness of God, your salvation cheapens. You can't appreciate what God has done for you until you grasp where you stand in the sight of a holy God. And Brother Dan shared about this last Sunday evening in devotional. We talk about the love of God, and, and, and this may be, I suppose it depends a little bit on, on uh, the emphasis in your surroundings, but I, I, particularly at home in our community, I feel there's a very heavy emphasis on the love and the grace of God. That affects your, your focus in evangelism, it affects how you present the gospel, and it affects how you live your Christian life. God's love we could sing all morning about his love. One of my favorite hymns, The Love of God. We could sing about his grace and his mercy all morning. And that's important. But if you and I were suddenly, right now, in the presence of God, what would impress you? Let's look at the example of those who did see the Lord. Revelation chapter 1. When mortal man stands in the presence of a holy God, there is only one response. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> Read through verses 20. Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches.
Who was this in the presence of God? This was John. We read the first verses in the devotional. Brother Ellis read from John chapter 1. And we have the Apostle John introducing his Lord, introducing his friend. Throughout the gospel, he refers to himself as what? Someone? How does John refer to himself in the gospel of John? The disciple that Jesus loved. There was something special there. Peter, James, and John, the Mount of Transfiguration with him. And here we are in Revelation. And John is on the Isle of Patmos. And he sees this vision. He sees his Lord. But what did he do? This was his friend. This was, dare we say, Jesus' best friend when he was here on earth. And yet when John sees Jesus glorified in heaven, what does he do? Does he run to him and cling to him? He says, I fell at his feet. He's dead. Why did he do that? Why? Because when man catches a glimpse of the holiness of God, that's the response. That is the response. In the glorious blaze of the holiness of God, John didn't just see God, he also saw himself, right? That's what happens. When we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, we don't just get a picture of how God is. That picture of how God is shows us who we really are. Ezekiel, chapter 1, we read his attempt to explain the glories that he saw. He said, I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about, and, and it's hard to put this all together, what he's describing, from the appearance of his loins even upward, from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about, there was, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, I just read a small section of it there, but he's talking about this brightness as the rainbow and and fire and brightness round about, he said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. And I heard a voice of one that spake. He fell on his face. When given a glimpse of the holiness and glory of God, there's clarity. There's no doubt. And God is acknowledged and he is worshipped as holy. The blaze of his holiness is not something that you can get accustomed to. It's not something that you get used to and it doesn't strike you anymore. A couple chapters later in Ezekiel, 
The Lord told him to go out into the plain. I will talk to thee there. He says, I went out, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar, and I fell upon my face all over again. He says, he fell upon his face. Why? Because God's holiness is glorious. If Ezekiel had been shown the glory of the Lord every day for the rest of his life, I believe every day he would have been on his face before the Lord. You don't become calloused to the brightness of his glory. If you still have your Bible open in Revelation, turn over to chapter 4. Those who know it best only worship him more. I love chapters 4 and 5. <clears throat> but I think we'll just read chapter 4. So he had the message to the seven churches and then says, After this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne... There was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind, and the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." The elders, they fall before his presence, they cast their crowns, and they say, Thou art worthy. You are worthy. And the heavenly beings cease not, what does it say? They cease not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. This passage reminds me of what we read back in Isaiah chapter 6. He also caught a glimpse. Chapter, one, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God of is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'll stop reading there. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, he heard the seraphim cry, and their cry to one another was what? Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can't separate his glory and his holiness. He is glorious because he is holy. And in the unfiltered brightness of the holiness of God, Isaiah saw himself with humming clarity and he said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Brothers and sisters, when we are brought into the presence of Almighty God, mortal man will fall in worship. Those who have denied him, they will acknowledge him. Those who have twisted his word and created a God that they like better, they will see him as he is. And they will acknowledge his unchanging holiness. Because everything, in his presence, everything is clear. Everything is plain. The hidden is revealed. And mortal man and eternal beings are smitten with the glory of his holiness. That leaves us with the question. How realistic is your picture of God? Is your God glorious in holiness? When you bow before him, when you pray, when you call out to him, is it with a casual comfort? Or do you recognize that you are bowing before the holy God of all the universe? It changes how you pray, friends. How big is your God? How holy is he? In the New Testament, we read of the access that we have. Ephesians 2 and 3, chapter 2, verse 18, For through Christ... We both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Chapter 3, verse 12 says that we have access with, or sorry, we have access with boldness, I think is how it's worded there. Do we remember what that access cost? And in our confidence in coming before the God of all the universe, are we remembering who He is? Sometimes I almost tremble. At the casualness and the carelessness with which people pray. This is God. Yes, we have access, but He's still God and He is still holy. It is only 
as we grasp his eternal holiness that we can appreciate the access that we have. We worship the same God that the psalmist said, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The same God who took Moses and he tucked him in a cleft of the rock so that he could pass by. And he said, no man can see my face and live. So he put him in the cleft of the rock and he put his hand over him. And yet in seeing the back parts of God, Moses' face shone so brightly that he needed to veil, veil his appearance so that the people could bear to look on him. Why did that happen? Because he caught a glimpse of the holiness of God. That's why. It will change you. We worship the God of Exodus 19, and this was mentioned in the Sunday school lesson. Or, yeah. God told Moses to sanctify the people because he was going to come down to meet with them. And the mountain was smoking and trembling, lightning. They set bounds around the mountain. God said, don't let anyone come close, that they die not. The people feared greatly in the presence of God. And what... I guess what resonated with me in the Sunday school lesson, what got me excited is because we have this concept, and I'm not saying you do, but people in general do, how God is fierce and holy and terrible, and yet Jesus is so loving and kind. And somehow we have a hard time putting the two together. There's a lot of people who have a hard time putting the two together. They are not in conflict with one another, friends. But you need to understand the holy God of the Old Testament before you can appreciate the loving Savior who came to die for your sins. The only reason you need a Savior is because God is holy. Because we have sinned, we have fallen, we're with, we're with Adam and Eve cowering in the bushes in fear. They knew the holiness of God. They, they used to walk with Him. They loved to be in the presence of a holy God. But after they sinned, it all changed. And it changed for you and I as well. And that's where we are. We're cowering there, trying to hide ourselves. Ashamed, fearful. Why? Because God is holy. And we are sinful before him. And until we understand that, we will never appreciate what our salvation has cost. Relationship was broken. There was no hope. Holiness is the standard for relationship with God. And when that holiness, when we have sinned, and we all have sinned, until we realize that that has separated us from the holiness of God, there is only one way to restore relationship with Him. Then you can start to appreciate what your salvation has cost. You can start to appreciate the blood shed for you. We've known His mercy we live by his grace. We felt his love shed abroad in our hearts. We have boldness. We've been adopted into the family. But we still serve a holy God. And may the emphasis of evangelical Christianity on his love and his grace never, never, never change our picture of holy God. Because when you stand before him in glory, he will still be holy. It is because of his love and his grace that we have a hope of standing before him. But he is still a holy God. 
Maybe it's just me, but sometimes I think we get pretty careless in our view of Him. If eternal beings in glory fall before Him, continually extol His holiness, and if in the presence of the Lord His best friend fell at His feet as dead, then what about me? What about me? Do I know what it means to stand in awe of God? Is my life, does it give evidence of a reverence that befits his holiness? What about my worship? Is he honored by my preferences in worship? Do my preferences matter at all? He is holy God. He establishes the standard for worship. Are my preferences about church aligned with his holy will or are they rather selfish too? I think there'd be a lot of clarity on a lot of issues if we understood God a little better. Because a deep and close relationship with God does not lead one to a more casual worship, doesn't make us more tolerant of sin, and it will not minimize the majesty of his holiness. Rather, when you see God, it will stir within you a passion for truth. It will fill you with, with the zeal for the defense of the gospel and the purity of his church. So, and I say this carefully, but when you have friends that are departing from truth that they have been taught, and they somehow present it in a very spiritual way, and they seem more spiritual than they ever were before. Brothers and sisters, when you understand God as he is, you will not become more casual. If you truly are becoming more spiritual, you will be filled with a reverence for him and his word that will move you. It will get a hold of your life. Because a fresh glimpse of his holiness is life-changing. Just ask John or Isaiah or Ezekiel. It's defining. It brings clarity to the questions that we have. I remember a time, oh, I don't know what I was, 18, 19, 20 probably. There was something that I was struggling with in my life. Well, I'm not sure I was even really struggling with it because I was unconvinced that this thing that brought me pleasure and that I enjoyed was actually sin. But it was in reading and in catching a fresh glimpse of the holiness of God that I found clarity on the issue and there was no question in my mind anymore. At that point it was simply a question, will my will align with God's? But it was in seeing God and His holiness that I saw very clearly, this is sin, this is wrong. It's opposed to the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God is light. brings definition. brings clarity to situations. It brings clarity to issues. brings clarity to relationships. So does all this talk about the holiness of God, even about fearing God, does that somehow minimize the grace love and the salvation that we have through Christ. God forbid. Never. 
have gone there already, but it is in seeing the holy and sinless perfection of God that we begin, that's when we begin to realize how great the gift of salvation really is. It is his holiness that magnifies his mercy. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us according to the adoption, Sorry, predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He's made us accepted in the beloved. He chose us before the foundation of the world because he knew we were going to need a Savior. And he chose us that we, sinful human beings, should be holy without blame before him in love. It is the grace of God that works his holiness in me. I know there's different definitions for grace, but I think for far too many Christians, their concept of grace is rather vague. But it's all about some mystical, unmerited favor that God pours out on them, and it's almost indiscriminate his favor and his blessing in their lives. That's not the grace of God. God's grace works his holiness in our lives. You can't separate it. The question we're left with is, do we desire his holiness in our lives? How would you feel about being called holy? Is that really what you want? Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Fall of peace with all men. Someone finish the verse. Fall of peace with all men. What was the last part? without which no man shall see the Lord. Do you desire holiness? Without which no man shall see the Lord. There's no favor, there's no seeing God if there is no holiness. So what is the holiness of God? What standard does he measure up to? God is not holy because he adheres to some external standard of holiness that when he is this and this, then he is holy. That's not how it works. God is the standard of holiness. He is holy. The most amazing thing of all we came to it in the lesson this morning. 
Uh, that stirred my thoughts. That phrase, um, and greater, uh, help me with that. You shall ask anything. No, I'm ahead of myself. But the, the concept that greater works than this shall he do, because then I go unto my father. Is that how it is? How can that be? Was any man born again? That was another question that stirred my thought. Was any man born again before or while, while Christ was here on earth? It couldn't happen, could it? The thief on the cross. He was saved and he died in faith, right? Because the work had not been completed. Forgive me if I get a little excited now, but what did Jesus say when he cried with a loud voice as he was giving his life? What did he say? He said, it, he said, Father, forgive them first. But just before he gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished. The work is complete. Get a hold of that, friends. He wasn't giving up. He wasn't saying, that's all I can do. It's over. You'd look at all the Gospels and compare them together. He cried with a loud voice. I believe those words were, it is finished. The work is done. How can you say the work is done when you're putting the Son of God in the tomb? Because the power of death can't keep him there. The work was complete. And because the thief died in faith, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But we are left with this challenge of holiness. How can we, as sinful human beings, yes, saved by grace, but how can we ever hope to measure up to this holy standard without which no man shall see the Lord? This is the part that excites me. It's not, it's not whether you can remember to speak holy things and to act in holy ways and to have holy and righteous attitudes. Greater works than this shall he do. Why? Because I go unto my Father, and he gave us the promise of what? His Holy Spirit. And his Spirit is just as holy as God the Father and God the Son, and he lives within our hearts. And so that evidence of holiness and holy lives that we must live are not simply something we remember to do. It is evidence of a Holy Spirit that lives within. He chooses to live in temples of clay, blemished though we are, and he, as he lives within us, you can't keep him in. He expresses himself, and he expresses himself in ways of holiness. And God is pleased. And too often we're trying to act holy, and we're trying to say holy things, and we're trying to be holy. But we're not doing it with the power of the Holy Spirit living within. That's the only way. He's given us a standard. It's an impossible standard if you measure it from human perspective. But because we have his Holy Spirit, we can be holy. Our interests, our attitudes, our priorities, our thoughts, our motives, our reason for living is sanctified because his Spirit is now our life. We have died to ourselves. Revelation chapter 22 is where it all comes together. 
verse 11. I was driving to Virginia for meetings earlier this year, or sorry, last year, and I passed a church, and they had a sign out front, you know, those sentence sermons? And that one caught my eye because it was exam week at the time, I believe. And the sign said, Graduates, the final test will be an open book exam. I thought that's pretty good. We know the standard. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. The book is open. It's open now. Revelation twenty-two eleven identifies how it will be. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. You can't wait till that day to decide, decide that you like holiness and decide that you're going to pursue holiness. The word of the Lord is, He that is holy, let him be holy still. Friends, this morning, I trust your thoughts have been stirred at least a little bit. We haven't been given an impossible standard, but it's a high standard. He has established the standard. His holiness is the measuring stick. It's not just a list of rules. Scripture is the expression of God himself. And that would be an impossible standard for us, except for the fact that he has given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that when I was lost in sin, and even though I didn't understand it all then, and I certainly don't understand it all now, holy God chose to make a way for me. And it is only as I grasp a little more about his holiness that I appreciate just how much I needed the cross, just how much I needed the blood. I was teaching about communion emblems on Friday again tomorrow communion means more to me now than it ever did because you need to understand how lost you are before you can ever ever appreciate what he's done for you I challenge you to think about the great sacrifice he made that you wouldn't have needed if you weren't lost and I challenge you as you witness to others, it's not just about the standard phrase for most evangelicals today is God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Does he have a wonderful plan for your life? Absolutely he does, but most people have a wonderful plan for their lives too. Lest you know you're a sinner, you don't need a savior. It changes how we present the gospel. It changes how we raise our families. It changes how we live our lives.